And that's what I'm trying to teach athletes now because I have an athlete, for instance, who won a gold medal three years ago, four years ago, and she thinks she's not relevant anymore. She thinks, well, there's other people that will come along and, and share their story that are more relevant. And I'm like, absolutely not, because I learned over the years how to exactly what you said, make it timeless, but really actually make it all about the audience. Raise 1000 Voices is the podcast on a mission to raise the voices of the clever, creative and courageous women across the world. I am your host, Jacqueline Nagel, and I invite you to join me in conversations with women who will inspire and empower you as we explore just how to lift our levels of self-trust, to reclaim the narrative and to use our voice to go after exactly what we want, doing it with strength, power and grace. So welcome to the next conversation in Raise 1000 Voices, and I'm here with the amazing Kerry Pothas. Welcome, Kerry. Hello. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, it's so good to reconnect. Now, Kerry, we've known each other for a few years now. Most of Australia knows you as a gold medal winning Olympian. I'd love to know for the audience who don't know you and those who do know you a little, can you just take a few moments now to walk us through? Well, first of all, actually, where are you? (laughs) Well, I'm actually sitting in my home. I've got my kitchen in the background. Yes. It's my home office. I'm looking out over the ocean in freshwater in beaches in Sydney, and it's a beautiful day. So it's like... Yeah, so wherever you're coming to us from around the world, I think you probably are sitting in the most spectacular views on the planet right now, aren't you? I am. And if you if you see me going like this, oh, I'm just checking out dolphins riding the waves. (laughs) Curly pool. Amazing, amazing. So the road to get to where you are now, do you want to just like give us a a run through in sort of five to 10 minutes of Kerry Pothast and how she got to be where she is now sitting in a beautiful home overlooking, looking at dolphins diving out of the water? Oh gosh. So where do we start? I guess I've got to start with the fact that my parents came over in the fifties from Germany. So my mum came over and she paid for her ticket by singing opera on a boat, on a ship from Germany with my dad and my brother who was one year old and one suitcase. And that's how my family emigrated into Australia. They ended up in South Australia and that was where I was born and my sister was born. So family of three kids, I'm the youngest. I was always the baby. So it was treated like the baby, even though now I'm in my fifties. <laughs> it never leaves, does it? No, it never leaves. I was, well, I was introduced into volleyball back in Adelaide in South Australia. And it was only by accident because my brother needed me to fill in and stand on the court to be the sixth person on the court while the whistle blows. He said, when the whistle blows, get out of the way so we can play each point, but we need you on the court to start the game. (laughs) It was kind of by accident. My love for the sport grew very quickly from there. Everybody loved the fact that I was super tall. I was six foot tall at 15 which also made me really self-conscious. So I was in a state at the time I was self-conscious. I was growing fast, had funny last name, Pot Fast. Take yeah. the tea off and there's a big ass in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, it's a cruel. I know, I know. And kids are cruel. So I, you know, I was, I guess I was bullied at school. I, you know, I was quite sensitive. So when I found sport, I kind of found my tribe. I was really like, you know, I walked into the gym and everyone's like, oh my God, you're so tall. That's awesome. We'll teach you how to play. And I was lucky I was in a great club at a great state in, in Australia that had really good coaches and mentors. 
And one of my great mentors, she was a captain of the national team for a while. She became my coach and she just had a way of coaching that was really funny. Sometimes it was a bit over the top crass that would just make us cringe. And then she was real hard on us at times. Like she would just turn into this monster coach and and thrash us until we were just exhausted. So she had this kind of really love, loving kind of coaching style, but it was hard. And I guess that's kind of shaped me as a player as well. And then when I became a coach, you know, I have that, I sometimes might have that with my son as well. (laughs) Tough love. But yeah, that was fantastic growing up playing indoor volleyball. Then I wrecked my knee really badly, couldn't make it back to indoor, discovered beach. Beach volleyball was becoming an Olympic sport in the the Olympics that were three years away from when I'd, no, actually not three years away, four years away from when I wrecked my knee. So So how old were you at that point? I was 27. Oh, wow. Okay. So you've been playing for a while. Yeah, I played 10 years for the indoor national team. I played overseas professionally in Italy. Like I was like one of the top, well, the top player in Australia in indoor volleyball and captain of the national team. Everything was going great. And then when I, I wrecked my knee, it was like, you know, the carpet was just taken from underneath me and completely destroyed my life because my whole life was just being an athlete. So that took a lot of, I guess, courage and shifting in my mindset and all sorts of stuff to get me through that. And we can talk about that down the track. Yeah. Making the switch to beach volleyball then just opened up a whole new opportunity for me because it was a new sport, but it was also a different sport because instead of six on the court, I only had myself and my partner. And instead of being on the hard floorboards indoors with shoes on, I was out on the sand with the elements, the sun, the wind, the rain, uh, and the sand. So... Mm different but I absolutely fell in love with beach volleyball after my knee was able to handle it and then I played another 10 years with the green and gold and the Australian you know logo on me and absolutely you know I guess it was the best part of my athletic journey was those 10 years and the most important part for me was between our first Olympics and and our second Olympics first where we won bronze and the second where we won gold yeah, and that's a story I want to unpack a little bit more for our audience yeah. because it's one of the it's one of the conversations that still stands in my mind from when we first got to know each other. So I'd love to share that with the rest of the audience. Yeah. So post two thousand, which is when you won the gold Olympic medal in your home city of Sydney, which is phenomenal. Walk us through the shifts and the changes in your career and your life since then. Well, at first I did then retire. Two years later, I thought, okay, now's a great time to retire. I had a partner. And he and I thought, well, why don't we just kind of start a family? And I was ready for that. I was really ready. At the age of 37, I thought, now's the time. And unfortunately, he changed his mind. (laughs) (laughs) We split up, which was pretty hard on me at the time because I'd left my, the sport, the love of my life being my sport, you know, the guy that I thought was the guy for me, you know, everything just fell in a heap. And so I decided to do what most athletes do when things like that happen is make a comeback. So <laughs> I made a comeback and I played another Olympics with a different partner. I didn't realize that. Yeah, I played in Athens in 2004 with a different partner. She was again younger, much younger, and gave her the opportunity of getting to the Olympics. I learned so much. That was a whole nother learning journey of just trying to, like we were just scraping and, and fighting and battling and 
you know, from the bottom of the barrel, really, to try and get through to qualifying for the Olympics. That was our big journey. And then after I did that, I finished ninth at those Olympics. The team that unfortunately knocked us out was Natalie and her new partner. Oh, no. Partner and her new partner. We had to play each other and they got the better of, of us on the day. And so, yeah, I left with a bit of a bad taste in my mouth after Athens. But, you know, I got over it. I saw it for what it was, a great opportunity to play a third Olympics and bring another person into that mix as well and learned a lot about just being tough and fighting and resilient. Then had my beautiful son a year or two later with my husband. And, yeah, and ever since I have just been sharing the stories of all the lessons that I've learned along the way and... um, In fact, now I'm helping other people do the same thing. So I'm helping my tribe, which is athletes, share their story because, as you know, stories are where it's at. Stories are everything, you know. And one of the things, one of the things that I really love about, you know, having got to know you over time is, you know, those that win and make it to the level that you do at the gold medal level, a lot of them do become speakers and ambassadors for sport and they kind of take that story to a stage. But what you've managed to do and what I love about what you've done is you're actually, and I don't like saying this out loud, we're 23 years post Sydney and you're still speaking and still in demand for speaking because you've actually found a way to make your story timeless and not just about the gold medal event. Would that be right down there? Absolutely. And that's what I'm trying to teach athletes now because I have an athlete, for instance, who won a gold medal three years ago, four years ago, and she thinks she's not relevant anymore, exactly the same. She thinks, well, there's other people that will come along and, and share their story that, that are more relevant. And I'm like, absolutely not, because I learned over the years how to exactly what you said, make it timeless, but really actually make it all about the audience and not yeah. about... And that's the key. That's what we work with people every day. Even when the story is all about you, it's not about you. It's about the audience. Yeah. There's some specific parts of your story I want to dive into, but what are the things that you find that you share that really land with an audience when you're speaking from a stage? I think when I was going through my knee reconstruction, when I wrecked my knee when I was 27, and I was really kind of at the bottom of, you know, my emotional, I guess, tank, I really was lucky that I had a very supportive boyfriend at the time and he gave me this volleyball that I wrote all my goals all over. And so I talk, I bring that ball to the stage, you know, show it to people. It's all about basically having something in front of you to remind you of what your goals are about. And when I tell that story, I think that really resonates with people that they actually, people have goals and dreams in their mind, but they forget about them because life is so busy and with our phones now I mean you just cannot you just do not have a spare moment you can just get sucked into that vortex of scrolling or answering messages and you just don't have a moment to remind yourself of what you really want in life and so that's just an example of what I did to help me focus on a new goal which became beach volleyball and on the ball I had all these little goals about how I would rehabilitate my knee and the fact is I didn't even really know how to do it because I'd never had such a serious injury So I kind of made the steps up and that's what I also want to share to people is that you don't have to exactly know how you're going to get there. You just have to start having that vision in mind and then craft out a few little steps and then get going and put some dates on those steps and put it out somewhere where you can see it every day. You know, if you want to lose weight, put a picture of yourself looking, you know, hot in your bikini or your speedos or whatever it is. (laughs) So you see it every day and so you make the right choices. So it's just a a reminder part about it. And we did that multiple times throughout our journey and I always come back to that. You know, we put up our gold medal excellence plan. 
in the bathrooms of all the hotels we were staying at, you know, after a loss, we'd go back in there and look at the plan and go, oh, yeah, that's why we're doing this. And, yep, that's what we need to do. And this is the person we need to be because that plan kind of encompassed all those yeah. attributes. So, yeah, there's so many stories that align well with people's ordinary lives. And that's the feedback that I get when, you know, you're sitting there in a corporate audience, you know, sometimes it's all dry and it's all about your business and industry and all that sort of stuff. But when someone can come in and actually just make people feel like they're valued as individuals and make them start to think about what they want in their life, that just makes them a better person in a corporate environment and, you know, lifts yeah. everybody together as a team. I think that whole immersing yourself with that visual reminder, and I love that you actually created your own version of Wilson that, you know, you looked at and spoke to every day with your girls, basically. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's also, too, one of the things that I really do remember about you when I was first getting to know you, which you spoke to me about what happened between 1996 and 2000. And one of the strategies and tactics were, as you said, immersing yourself in gold. You had gold all around you. You had your gold medal plan wherever you went all that sort of stuff. But tell me how one of the things that sticks in my head is actually your moment of realization when you heard someone speak from the front of the room and he actually became your mindset coach for 2000. Hoping that you remember what that moment was when he was talking about that. Can you share that with the audience of what your aha moment was? Yeah, actually it wasn't my moment. It was Natalie's moment. Natalie's, okay. Yeah, I feel like it was my moment too because if it hadn't happened to Natalie, it wouldn't have happened for you. Being a part of our life. So it was not long after Atlanta, we'd won the bronze medal in Atlanta, so we'd finished third, and Natalie was seeking something. We actually, we took some time apart because after Atlanta, we started to get a little bit, I don't know, we just weren't putting the effort in. We thought we were really good. You know, we're sort of on our high horse going, yeah, we're bronze medalists, you know, we don't have to train as hard now. And of course, what happens then, you know, is you your results start going downhill. So then we started to blame each other. It's your fault. No, it's your fault. You know, it's your fault. And so we decided to split up. And it was actually the best thing we did because in that time, Natalie was seeking something to help her with her mindset because she talks about when she was standing on the sand in our semi-final match where we had a chance to go to the gold medal match in Atlanta instead of we lost it and went to the bronze medal match. She remembers thinking before we even stepped down on the sand that we were going to lose. So she realized wow. yeah, okay. she realized that it was her mindset that she needed to improve. And so she was seeking stuff and she went to a seminar in Brisbane with a success coach called Kira Cashley and he had recently come to Australia and he was doing fire walking seminars and motivational speaking, very Tony Robbins-ish. Mm-hmm. And she remembers him saying on the stage that, oh, no one remembers who comes second or third. You know, it's all about the person who finishes at the top. And that kind of hit her and and she kind of went, well, I came third. (laughs) Maybe there's something in this guy. She just resonated with his presentation. It's very different to sports psychology that we get the opportunity to work with a lot of sports psychologists in high-level sport in Australia, but it was very different. It was more about personal development. And, you know, there is in both. But it wasn't based on science, I guess, in a sense. So she went to him after the seminar and said, hi, you probably don't know me. I finished third. <laughs> and she said, I'm you know, really interested in maybe working with you and perhaps you can come on board and, and help me get towards Sydney 2000. I want to win a gold medal. At that time, she was playing with somebody else. And he came on board with her pretty much straight away. And I saw the difference in her within six months. She wow. had so much. She just seemed like a more confident person. 
The conversations we had were different. Yeah, within probably six months after that, I looked at her and I said, I want to like be playing with her again, you know. And in that time, I was doing some different things as well. I played with somebody who was very much the same level as me in terms of age and experience where in the beginning, Natalie was like my little sister and I was the coach and mentor. And so Natalie was off having her journey. I was off with someone at the same level and and learned how to just step back and not coach so much and just be a part of the team. So when we came back together, we were ready and it was like pure magic. I still remember the moment that we stepped on the sand. It was in France, in Marseille. And I was there with my partner. Natalie was there with her partner, playing partners. And there was a third Australian team. And one of the girls in the third Australian team hurt her knee. So there was a bit of a partner reshuffle. And we went, this is it. This is the opportunity. If Natalie and I play together, then our partners can play with each other. And, you know, we saw the reshuffle opportunity. We asked the tournament organisers and our federation, can we make this change at the last moment? They all agreed on it. We had one day of training. The moment we stepped out onto the sand together and just started warming up, we could both, it was such a strong feeling. We could both feel the magic and the, I don't know, it was just this aura around us. And we just, afterwards, we just looked at each other and went, yeah, yeah, yeah. sit. We've found the right combination at the right time. Let's go. And from that moment on, you know, it was gold or nothing. And obviously, Kirit came on board with me when we got back together. And at first I went, oh, I'm not walking on hot coals. I'm not walking on broken glass. That's silly. <laughs> you know, because that's a sensible one. And Natalie was always like doing, you know, all sorts of, you know, fun, crazy stuff. And so she brought that vibe into, and he brought that vibe back into the team with me. And that's when I kind of opened up to new opportunities and went, you know, maybe I need to really look at my mindset and see how much further I can open it up, push it and improve it. So if you had to say to a young athlete, and I know you mentor formidable young athletes, you're one of our best mentors in the country for up and coming young Olympians. What is it when you think about the difference between 1996 and 2000, obviously Kirk became part of it, you and Natalie had your separate journey that you brought back together. But what is it, the strongest piece of advice you take out of that period of time that you pass on to others now? For me, it's the belief. So in that time, we built the belief without a doubt that we were going to win on that day. And it doesn't happen overnight, the belief building. I mean, some people, you know, you can say it, but not really mean it. Oh, yeah, we're going for gold. Yep, we're going to win gold, but not really mean it and not really in your heart believe it. So then the question then beckons is how do you build that belief? Well, we had to do things, like I said, the glass walking, the fire walking, sounds a little bit left of center, but we did things that constantly pushed ourselves out of our comfort zone with Keurig. Every single opportunity he had, he would push us out of our comfort zone mentally, emotionally, physically. Our coach would do it physically on the court so that we were okay with being uncomfortable. Yeah. So that we were so comfortable with being uncomfortable that it was just, oh, yeah, we can do that. Oh, yeah, we can do that. So when it was like time to beat the Brazilians in the gold medal match, oh, yeah, we can do that. We've planned for this. We've yeah. done every single thing we needed to do. So to have that belief, you also need to have the plan behind you. You need to tick off all those little things that you need to do along the way. We knew that if we could beat the Brazilians, we'd beat every team in the world. So we trained to beat that team. We trained to be good enough to beat that team. And that would knock off every other team on the way. So we didn't worry too much about that. It was just 
beating that one team. And that all those things just came together to build the belief. And yeah. of course, we spent a lot of time together off the sand doing fun things, team building things to, again, build the belief in each other as well. Because we're two individuals going up against another team. We can be singled out easily. So one team can serve every ball at you, give you every ball. Like if they have to give you an easy ball back, they'll look out and go, okay, Kerry's over there. We'll give it to her because they think that you're the weakness or that you're the one they can get the point off of. So you can be really singled out as an individual. So you really need to have trust in each other as well. So we did some things where we would be in, I don't even know where in Brisbane it was now. We'd go into a national park somewhere and our coaches would hide with whistles and bushes and we'd be blindfolded. We did it one at a time so the other person could see how the person that was blindfolded would react. And we had to, with blindfolds, follow the whistle. And so how <laughs> yeah, in the middle of a national park, like stumbling over rocks and into trees and, you know, spider webs and all sorts of crazy stuff. So it was that was the ultimate in being uncomfortable where you have no control over your environment. So we practiced all those things that would completely push us to our limits, physically, emotionally, and mentally. So by the time we got there, we believed that we could do it. It didn't matter what the score was. And when I look at the score line in both sets, it was best of three sets and we won two sets to zero. Both sets, we were down by three or four points. And yeah. both teams at that point, when they're playing against the top team in the world who won everything leading into the Olympics, bar one match that we beat them. We beat them yeah. time in 17 matches leading into the Olympics. But... By the time we got there, you know, most teams would have just given up if they were four points ahead and just gone, oh, you know, they've got got this set. But on our faces, it was like, no, another point. Yep, no, another point, another point. So we had that belief the entire way through and we didn't give it up right to the end where we knocked them off at the end of each set. And they were stunned. They were literally shocked. Their faces, I've got it, photographs of it. You know, they were absolutely, they couldn't believe it themselves. I, what I really love about this, because I quite often talk to people I work with, you can't wish a new thing into being, right? You can't just have a goal and state it. You actually then have to create the steps, even if you don't know what they are. And I love the fact that you went, that Turek took both of you outside of your comfort zone because, and as you know, we're speaking, for most people, it's actually the most the terrifying arena they'll ever step into. And a lot of people who call themselves speakers, when you actually speak to them, aren't really doing a lot of it because it's quite terrifying being in that arena. Obviously, coming through elite sport, you and Natalie were powerful as a team and as individuals, you've both gone on to create a legacy plays. Like you're both really involved in various facets of the sports now. What do you think the importance of, and you're commentating a lot now, you speak from stage a lot, are You, what is the importance of women's voices in sports? That is a great question. I think that it's almost more important than men's voices. Can I say that? Yeah, you can. Great women standing up and leading and advising and facilitating. Natalie is now on the board of 2032, the Olympics yeah. coming through. I've been on the board of Volleyball Australia for a long time. I just think it's so important as a role model for the, our future generations to see that there are these opportunities as well. And women just have sometimes different perspective on things. Yeah, and do, and I think to have both perspective, I'm not saying 
I did start off by saying it's more important than men, but I think it, it's got to be a little bit more important to get the balance right. Yeah. Get us yeah. balanced in there. And so. I think once the balance is there, we're not going to have to be so strident about having the women's voices showing up. Yeah. When you also, because I know that, you know, you've really shifted gears into working with rising athletes and, and teaching them how to tell their story, which I love, and we explored that together some time ago, and I love seeing that come to life. What are the you find stops the younger female athletes from telling their story and finding their voice? It's really crazy, but it's they don't want to talk about themselves. That's yeah. simply it. They feel uncomfortable talking about themselves and talking about how successful they were. And to me, it's kind of like, why? Yeah. Why not? I just don't think they understand that the power of their journey and the lessons they learn, if they're able to craft them that story into something that really motivates and inspires and it leans and advises other people, that they can change lives. Yeah. And so, for instance, I had an athlete recently who was really not confident during her, she's an Olympian. She didn't win a gold medal, but she's an Olympian. And she really felt like a bit of an imposter the whole time throughout her career, had no confidence whatsoever and has only just gained all that confidence now in, I don't know, 10 years past, 15 years past in her retirement. And I said, oh, that's really funny because I was the opposite way around. I <laughs> <laughs> was really confident through my sport of what I, I did and what I had. And then I'm not saying that I'm not as confident now, but yeah, it was it was really interesting listening to her, but she made me realize there are so many women that don't like talking about themselves and what yeah. and, I, and do you yeah. think that comes down to is it imposter syndrome is it inner critic is it self-worth where do you think it's sitting I think it's yeah I think it's what people think about them yeah. I think they're too worried about what people think and that if they say how good they are then other people and it's the problem in Australia you know they talk yeah right but I tried to explain to her I said it's not about you when you speak even no. though you use the word I sometimes because it's your story and you can't say, Kerry did this and Kerry did that. You have to say, I. But if you can always throw back to the audience, if you can always say, look, if we can see that this is happening in our life and then we can apply this strategy, then imagine how far we could go or if you could see. So I was just, yeah, it was a really interesting conversation I had with her. And I think, I hope that the light bulb went off in her head and she realized how powerful her story was. And and it's not just females, it's males as well. I had the same conversation with a, a volleyballer who wanted to speak, but he said, I haven't won a gold medal, although he'd won a Commonwealth Games gold medal. I'm giving him up now, maybe. Olympic <laughs> gold medal. But he said, oh, look, I, I don't think I've got a story because I'm not a Paralympian. You know, I've got a mate who's a Paralympian who won a story. You know, he lost his leg and he's got a big story there and now he's won a gold medal at the Paralympics. He's got a great story, but I don't. I'm like... Mm. let's see. And we sat down for two hours and I unpacked all of his journey. I went, oh my God, you've got an incredible story. And his story was all about resilience. So athletes, you know, when they're in it or just retired, I just don't think they can see how powerful no. these are. I mean, I remember, and I'm not going to name her, but one of the women that I met through the gold medal program that you drew me into through the AIS I remember when we were doing the tell your story sessions and she looked at me, she said, but I don't have anything to say. And it's one of our most prolific gold medal winners. And I was like, okay, 
nothing to say. She said, no. She said, I don't have a single story to share. And this wasn't even about from a stage. This was, as you know, just to the younger Olympians coming through, the younger squad coming through as mentors. But when we actually, I left her alone with that, but when we actually went into just general conversation at lunch, there was story after story after story that she just naturally told. And that was so powerful. And this is, whether it's an Olympic athlete, and I want to come back to the celebrity status thing in a minute, whether it's an Olympic athlete or a Commonwealth elite athlete, let's go elite athlete, or somebody just with extraordinary lived and worked experience, we actually, they have blind spots with where their stories sit. So there's a couple of things that I want to unpack from that a little bit further. Number one is it's interesting because the man that you just described, because he hasn't won an Olympic gold medal, he's like, I don't have a story to tell. Do you think there's too much pressure put on, we have to have some sort of celebrity status to have the right to tell a story? Yeah, absolutely. I do because celebrities are paid more in that sense initially. Yeah. Initially, you know, but their celebrityism and if there's nothing behind it, it will eventually fade. But someone with a great story, when they realize their story and the potential of the ability to inspire other people or educate other people, coach, lead, whatever it is with their story, when they realize that, that will live forever. And that actually gets more valuable, I think, as time goes on. Because I thought that too. Straight after 2000, we set a fee for our speaking engagements. Natalie and I were doing them separately. We've rarely done them together because then we're like, well, then they're going to have to pay us double. <laughs> yeah, we're not sharing. <laughs> not sharing that. Yeah. So uh, she's the Brisbane. I'm in Sydney. It works fine. Yeah. <laughs> Australia each. No, that's okay. But Yes, yeah, so I thought straight after Sydney, I thought when the next Olympics came along, I thought, oh, look, people won't, same thing, people won't want to listen to me now. There's a new bunch of gold medalists. But then I realised a lot of them didn't want to tell their story, so I kept going. Another Olympics comes through. I'm not even an Olympic. I'm not even going to that Olympics. I'm now retired. There's more gold medalists coming through. And, oh, they won't want to listen to me. But then I realised my story's getting better. I'm now able to actually involve the audience. I'm developing workshops off my story. I, I've written a book. I've done all these other things, you know, I'm starting to MC. I'm honing my craft and getting better and better and better at it through just basic experience. No one was even coaching me. And so, you know, year after year after year, I actually think I've got so much better and that's become more valuable. So, yes, we did have a little bit of celebrityism back then, but that's not why I'm being booked now. It's because no. the way I can tell my story and the story, the way I've been able to craft the story you know, to really inspire, entertain and educate people. Yeah. Side note, and sorry if you don't want me to go there, but <laughs> here we go. Side note, you're actually a brilliant MC, by the way. I think you're one of the best that I've ever engaged. So um, just for the people listening, I mean, I know the keynote speaking and the workshops and the mentoring is really it, but the, uh, you as an MC was quite extraordinary. What's the thing you did differently as well? Because before we were coming onto this call, you actually um, said to me that you haven't had a an actual job since was it 1996 or 1994? Yeah, when I say actual job, I mean like a nine to five job. Yeah. I left my job in 1994 to go full time or part time and then full time into playing beach volleyball because I was starting to get um, some prize money and some sponsorship. And I have not been engaged in a proper full time job since then. So I've been able to earn a fantastic income. It's not huge and grand or whatever, it's just a really nice income. From speaking, emceeing, I wrote the book. Every couple of years, I think, I'm going to do next. <laughs> <laughs> next iteration of this. I don't really even know what I want to do if I wanted to get a nine-to-five job. 
you know, I've had little gigs here and there. I was, you know, the marketing person for the national tour, beach volleyball tour one season, just a little bit of contract stuff here and there. But yeah, mainly just through speaking. And so, as I said, the next iteration is now helping other athletes share their story. Because I keep waking up every kind of December-ish, around December when everything slows down with speaking and I go, is this last year that people want to hear from me? Am I going to get work again? Do I need to find something more to make some, you know, to make <laughs> income so I can pay the bills? And then come January, February, the diary starts to fill up. Fill up. And I absolutely love it because it ma- it still makes me feel good. And, and that's a big part of the reason I want athletes to actually understand that sharing their story will help them in their transition yeah. from sport into kind of real life because they'll just be sharing those lessons. And, that, and those lessons get imprinted more and more into your DNA. The more I talk about setting the goals, the more important it becomes and the more I do it myself. Yeah. And the more I talk about having a really positive mindset and doing all these things that we did in our strategies that I share, the more I do it in normal life. So, you know, it's it has so many benefits and it makes me feel good. Amazing. From the perspective of, you know, we we have an audience of predominantly women, although there's some really amazing good men that do listen who reach out to me every podcast when I say predominantly women, they say, don't forget we're here. But from the perspective of women, are there actually female voices, whether it's in sport or in the world generally, that you really admire at the moment? Ah, oh, that's another good question. Gee, you've got the hard ones. Yeah, sorry. Well, <laughs> I should have given you a well, glass of wine. <laughs> well, yours is the first one that comes to mind because the moment I met you, Jack, I realised how you know amazing your courses are. I did your three-day intensive course. I loved it. And I must admit, I did it with the the mindset of, I want to learn how to do what you're doing for athletes. Yeah. It was the catalyst and something that really helped me kind of kick off what I want to do with athletes. Other women. I Look, people have asked me throughout my journey, who do you look, look up to? Are there any athletes that you, you know, feel like are your role models? And I don't, I've never been able to pinpoint one or two people. I'm the type of person that takes a little bit from everybody. Yeah. That's how I learned to play volleyball. Like I'd see someone set a ball, you know, hand set the ball and I'd go, I want to set like him or her. It didn't matter if they were male or female. And then I'd see someone spike and go, I want to spike like that person. I see someone serve and go, I want to serve like that person. So when I see a speaker, I want to be on stage and have the presence and stand like that person. I like uh, that. That makes me feel good. I want to have slides. You know, interesting thing about having slides and we talk about how PowerPoints, you know, you know, death by PowerPoint. Death by power. I tell, like, I, I watched one of my athletes that I'm mentoring at the moment do a presentation and she she had no slides. She just had a, the slide that they put up of her face and her name in the background. And every time she was telling a story, I'm like, I want to see a picture of that. I want to see a picture yeah. of that. And so... You do need, and this is one of the things because, you know, I'm very passionate about you've got to be able to speak without slides. But I don't mean always speak without slides because we need visual anchors. So like you just said, like you're telling this amazing story, like give me the anchor for it, Yeah. right? Take it into, make it visceral for me. Like, yes, I'm listening to you and it's amazing and I can feel it, but I want to see it and I want to feel as though I can lean into it. And yeah, and also too, as you know, the bigger the stage, the more you need that to help really bring that story through. So I I do love that point. But yeah, it's absolutely, I always say you need to be able to deliver this if the tech fails. But you also need to just bring us one visual for every element that you use to us so we can just bury ourselves in it. And especially when you're telling your life journey because to be able to see a picture of the person in their real life just 
creates a connection to the speaker as well. And so for me, it was when I went to see a presentation and it was, it was an educational one, but the speaker put a picture of his family in there and he told a story about his family, but it was, the rest of it was educational about an industry or something. And I went, wow, I kind of feel like I know that person so much better. That's when I started putting pictures on my slides. I didn't really have many slides before that, but I'd use pictures and, and no words. I think it's also, it ties into, we just had a really big conversation in the team here because for various reasons, you know, I love teaching others to speak. I don't necessarily like being at the front. And we've just, you know, had a really big conversation with my team. They're saying, Jack, you've got to get out of the front. We can't produce any more beautiful slides and tiles. Like it's got to be you and you've got to be speaking. And, and I, you know, it's really kind of dropped this morning, but it's the same sort of thing. Like, you know, whether we're on social or we're speaking from a stage, show people who you are. Yep. Better know who you are, and and so important to create that connection because it's not only the feeling then that the audience gets when you're sharing a story; it's also like the after effect as well because they can then share that story to somebody else if they feel yeah. connected, like they know you, they'll remember that story, they'll remember the lesson, and they'll remember the experience so much more. Yeah, they have that visual. When it comes to yourself, both yourself and Natalie have really are still relevant, still timely. People still love to hear either of you speak. When it comes to having created that, what do you think has been the secret? Like you said, you keep your, you've been evolving your stories, you're getting more relevant. But realistically, we're looking at a 23-year time span since that gold medal performance, if you like. And what I've noticed getting to know you and also a little bit of Natalie is that Australia still loves you girls. Like Australia still loves... Nat and Kerry from the 2000 Olympics, like that love affair hasn't actually died down. Does that make sense? What yeah. do you think's been the key to that? We haven't done anything controversial. We haven't got into trouble that you know about. Yeah. <laughs> and what happens off Google stays off Google. Yeah. I, look, I remember straight after the games, it wasn't long after we finished and we did the, the ceremony, we had to do a drug test. And to do a drug test and fill the cup, you know, you, literally, if you don't fill the cup, you have to hang around until you're able, your body's able to produce enough that they can test. And sometimes you can sit there for hours and we didn't want to sit there. So we guzzled back all the water. And I remember then Channel 7 took us up after that onto the hill in Bondi to do a live cross. And we're standing there in this suburban street and all these people come out of their houses and they're crowded around us. And I have a photo of this. This is my opening story, literally sometimes. And all the water that we're drunk, we now we needed to go to the bathroom. <laughs> this live cross. And I looked at this lady who'd come out of her house and said, do you have a house around here? She said, yeah, just across the road. I said, can I please use your bathroom? And we ran across to her house. And it, this was the moment that I realized that my life was going to change. And from this moment on, I really am going to be a role model if I wanted to, if I wanted to take yeah. that off. Because when I... Oh, when I came out of the bathroom, I opened her door and she was just standing there looking at me going, I'm never going to wash my bathroom again. <laughs> I went, oh my God, we are so famous now. Like, And we still didn't realise how much of an impact that win had. It was the afternoon that Kathy Freeman won. So we won on yeah. the Sunday that Kathy Freeman won, but people will remember where they were. So it was such a memorable moment. We didn't plan for it, but we made the most out of it. And for me, the biggest thing was, okay, now I am in the public eye. I take that seriously. I'm a role model. I will do everything I can to leave a legacy. It was on our Olympic plan as well to leave a legacy in the sport. Yeah. Uh, we wanted to to leave that mark. Yeah, I will just uphold my sport, women in sport, women in general, athletes, everything, you know, from that moment on. So 
It was I love the intentionality behind that because you actually captured it in the plan, first of all. So when that moment happened, again, you were ready for it mentally. Yeah, we were ready for it. We went, yep, this is why we did it. It was yeah. a big part of our plan was to realize what is the purpose? I mean, it's the yeah. same in speaking. What's the purpose of you speaking? If your purpose is true and real and it, it's something about, you know, making, if it's just about making money, then there's going to be a lot of problems there. But if it's about yeah. making a difference and, you know, changing people's lives because of your presentation and having that reason there, then when you get nervous or when you think, oh, I've got no jobs, you know, coming up, what can I do? You know, when there's those kind of challenges, go back to the reason why you're doing it. And that, that will just re-inspire you every single time to get you through that challenge. And that's exactly what Natalie and I use that purpose for. And the purpose, one of those purposes, there are about 15 on, on our list, was yeah. to leave our mark in history. I love that. Now, speaking of challenge, I am going to throw in, just before we wrap up, I'm going to throw in a very big challenge that you did. Was that last year or the year before? Oh. And the whole of Australia watched? Yeah. You <laughs> I, I'm still hurting from it. <laughs> I'd love you to just share just, you know, um, what it was that you did and really what you took out of it because that was, that was a really confronting experience for you. Yeah, crazy, right? So I did what a show, a reality show called SAS Australia, and it's probably the most real reality show on television around the world because we're thrown into a course that is run by commandos, SAS, you know, army people, for those people who don't understand that, where it's basically a selection course. And the ones that don't voluntarily or get cut for any other reason or get injured, those that don't leave, whoever's left over, basically make it into becoming a soldier, an SAS soldier, one of the highest levels. So before we go, before we go into what you learn out of it, actually, if I can just interrupt, because when you first mentioned that you were looking at it, I thought you were crazy. And the reason being, well, yes, you are, but the reasons being you are a woman, you are in your 50s like those sorts of things. Like what were your drivers for choosing to do it? Like what made you tip over and say yes? Well, the funny thing was I got a text message from Yana Pittman lying in bed in January a couple of years ago and it said, oh, I've, I don't know if you know, but I've signed up for this show. They're, they've just told me they're looking for another retired female athlete. Are you interested? And I just looked at it and laughed and went, oh, thank God, I could never do that. I'm 55, I'm... You know, I'm broken. I've had six knee surgeries. There's no way I could do that. And so I was starting to write that back to Yana in the message. I wish I'd screenshotted what I'd written, like, initially, <laughs> because then I just held it and I didn't press send and I was lying there. I was going, but gee, what? wouldn't it be an amazing challenge? And I'd have about two and a half months to get ready so I'd get really fit. Like, it gives me a goal. Oh my God, like this would be incredible. I've started to feel like I wanted to get fitter again. I hadn't been to the gym for years and years and years. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, delete, 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 delete. And then I wrote, okay, not I, I'm interested. I'll speak to the producer. And I said, and I pressed send. So initially it was the challenge. It was the thought of getting fit again. And yeah, just, I like to do things that people think are impossible because that's yeah. what we did by winning gold against the winningest team in the world on our home soil. So I thought, here's a challenge for me at 55. Who would ever get this challenge at this age? Can I just um, say, what a hell of a challenge, Kerry. Yeah, and I thought <laughs> that it would be safe to a certain extent because, you know, they wouldn't be doing it 
you know, if it wasn't, people do get injured, let me tell you, and could yeah. be injured. And I ended up having knee surgery afterwards because I tore more cartilage in my knee. But anyway, uh, <laughs> so I, I took on the challenge and then I treated it like a gold medal. It was so funny because I went, right, okay, I've got exactly 11 weeks to get ready. And I literally planned it out backwards. I went, okay, yeah. I want to be here in 11 weeks. What do I need to do? from that way to this point today. So I planned all my training sessions. I built a team like I did back when I, I needed, you know, I thought we want to win a gold medal. There's people we need on a team. I built my, my personal trainer. I picked him. I, I went to all the people who had done the previous show. I went to actually three people who had done the previous show. Shana Jack, swimmer, yeah. Shana Ponton, who lived in my area and reached out to Candace Warner, David Warner. Okay, yes. And the, the three of them had three different experiences. So I was able to glean from them the things that I needed. So again, I'm not picking one person. I'm picking different people with different Love that. skills and type, body types and ages and going, okay, what can they tell me how to get prepared? And they were fantastic. I did breath work. I did all these different things that you wouldn't, I didn't just go to the gym. I just, I was literally drowning myself in the local Olympic size swimming pool to see how long I could stay underwater. <laughs> I, paths. I just, I just threw everything into it because when you set a goal, you know, unless you find out everything you can about it, it's, you know, it's kind of a hit and miss if you're actually going to get a bit get of a wish list, isn't it? Yeah, be fully prepared. So by the time I stood on the start line 11 weeks later, I felt like the fittest and strongest 55-year-old woman on the planet. Yeah. And then I got then I proceeded to get absolutely smacked over the next 6 days. <laughs> A 13-day course. I made it to day 6, but the funny thing is in my head I said I'll be happy if I get halfway through. And oh, you so, set the intention. Yeah. And I literally got halfway through and then my knee just, I couldn't do anymore. The last thing I did was that I jumped into a big pit of ice and had to answer all these questions. And like when most people go, oh, freezing, like this is, I'm in ice. I'm like, oh, my body, this feels so good because I said, because <laughs> it's in so much agony. <laughs> I loved it. I'm like, hey, here. And then I, yeah, you were just doing your ice bath. Yeah. <laughs> I just got out and I said, I'm done. I'm done. I, you know. So what was, was the most, me. what was the most confronting and challenging thing about that six days? Being underwater. Yeah. That was the scariest thing for me. I mean, I've, snakes, which we didn't see any of, are something that scares me a little bit. And being underwater and not being able to breathe was a scary thing, which is why I did the breathing, the breath work, and yeah. I tried to immerse myself. And even on the day when we were sitting there watching we were put in a, a truck, an old truck on a crane, and they lowered it into the lake. And we were we were seatbelted. We had a seatbelt on. We had to keep our hands on the steering wheel. The water was just slowly coming up. With the, they were putting us down into the thing, and then the truck would then eventually hit the bottom. And when the truck hit the bottom, we had to wait until the diver put his hand on our shoulder to undo the seatbelt and then swim through the back window of the truck and then up to the lake. And we were sitting there and I probably was about halfway through the group. So probably five or six people had already done it. And every time the truck went to kind of there on the person, I started to hold my breath. And I never once was able to hold my breath until they came up to the surface. And I was so panicked about doing this. But I remember that Jess Paris, Nova Paris's daughter, was sitting next to me. She's the one that I had to box and do the hand. Yeah. 
again, she was sitting next to me and she just kept on putting a hand on my arm and saying, it's okay, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. So that really helped. But I'd also done the breath work and I knew that it wasn't about, I had to get rid of the panic. I had to calm my breathing down. And, you know, this is something that you can do when you're standing out in the back of a stage, right? You have to just calm yourself with your breathing. And I knew that instead of going and gulping like that, that's absolutely the wrong thing to do when you get caught underwater. You just have to calm right down and just take normal breaths. And then as the water was coming up and going over my head, I just closed my mouth and then I just calmly waited until I felt the hand on my shoulder. But the first time he put his hand on my shoulder, he was holding me down. I'm like, can I go? Can I go? Can I go? <laughs> wait, wait. And they hold you there for a minute. Not a minute, but. But it seems like a minute. minute. And then as soon as I left, you know, as soon as he left, I just undid it and swam to the top and then hit the, and I was just like, yes. So yeah. Amazing. What's the biggest insight you take out of that experience? Just knowing that I can challenge myself in any circumstance and feeling again, that same feeling that I felt in sport that I hadn't felt for so long that I really can do anything that I set my mind to. And the positive out of that is knowing that even at 55, I can get my body back to feeling really fit and strong. And, you know, before that, I was like any other woman in her 50s. Yes, I'd had an athletic career, but I'd done nothing for 10 or so years. I'd yo-yoed with Wade. I'd go to the gym for a week or two and then I wouldn't go for a few months. And <laughs> start again and start again. But what I did realize that really helps with health and fitness is you have to have a goal. You yeah. absolutely have to have a goal. And I've struggled again with that since that show, having a goal because I was going through my knee injury and then I got a frozen shoulder and then my elbow started to give out and all these excuses. And I've just found my new goal. Amazing. Are we allowed to know what it is this time? Yes. I'm going to put it out into the world because unless you share it and if you it's keep not it, real. you know, no, yeah, you have to share it. My next goal is, you know, obviously to get my health and fitness. I want to be the fittest and strongest again that I have been in my 50s. This coming next year in July, I think it's July, August, have to check the date, I'll be 20 years retired. Wow, okay. 20th anniversary of the Athens Olympic Games, which is the last time I played internationally. I played in Australia since then, but 20 years retired from international competition and I want to be really fit and strong come that anniversary date. So that's the date I've set myself. I love that. I love that so much. Kerry, we could and we usually do speak forever. I'm going to have to wrap it up very soon. Before we do, though, is there anything else that you'd love to leave us with? Any last-minute words of wisdom from Kerry Pothouse for our beautiful audience? I get asked a lot what I think the ingredients for success are over the years, and I've played around with all different words, but I've always come back to three. Passion, you have to love what you do, be really passionate about it, what you're speaking about, know that you want to make that difference preparation, do all the work, you know, find your mentors, your coaches, the people who are doing what you're doing, you know, ask them how they're doing it and get to work. And at the end of the day, belief and, you know, build that belief along the way that you can absolutely do what you're, you know, aiming for. Amazing. Kerry Pothouse, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Jax. Always a pleasure. 
Thank you for joining me for this episode of Raise 1000 Voices. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. And if you have, then I would love you to subscribe to and rate the show on your favorite platform. Our show notes, resources, and links to all our socials can be found at anygiventuesday.com.au forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to join a growing community of clever, creative, and courageous women who know that they want to be seen, heard, and remembered, then join us in our Facebook group, Raise 1000 Voices. Until we speak again, take care and remember, you were born to raise your voice.